0: Marcus Paul, almost a public figure. Marcus Paul in the morning. Marcus Paul in the morning. Marcus Paul in the mornings, right across Australia, on the iHeartRadio Radio and TuneIn Radio apps. The biggest issues. The biggest guess. Marcus Paul in the morning starts now. Tell him out here, he'll want to talk. Trust me, trust me. He telling, Are you meaning for rebel news? As expected, there's no chance. Marcus Paul coming out that door. What became evident tonight is that once you go broke, you you go woke. Rebel news. And good morning. Welcome to Thursday. Great to have you company wherever you're listening to us around Australia or elsewhere on the World Wide Web. Marcus Paul in the morning. Live between seven and nine Australian Eastern Standard Time on starterfm.com.au, the iHeartRadio platform. Please download the, uh, uh, of course, the app if you haven't already done for iHeartRadio, and uh, we're on tune in. And if you're listening to us on the podcast, we like to call that the Prawncast me being prawny and all that. (laughs) My take on the day's news, uh, lots of information um, and a little bit of commentary and comment thrown in as well. Uh, Where are we going to start today? Well, I know what I'm going to mention, and that is the fact that convicted pedophiles, I know it's awful to bring this up, but they are able, did you know, to tie up all of their money in their super and their victims cannot get anywhere near it. Well, Grace Tame, the former Australian of the Year, has joined forces with another a number of other victims, uh, advocates, to try and have this law changed. And they're trying to get a, an audience with the Anthony Albanese government. Speaking of Albo, he's uh, well, he's launched into Adam Bad. I mean, who hasn't this week after that stunt that he pulled regarding the Aboriginal flag? I'll talk about what Anthony Albanese had to say in just a few moments as well. Uh, Now, the New South Wales budget discussions around that continue, and in particular, what wasn't provided. I mean, there are a lot of happy people after the budget, naturally. But the Taxi Council of Australia and the industry in general are certainly not amongst the happy campers. Why? Because they've been forgotten. You know, it used to be an asset to own a taxi licence. Nowadays they're virtually worthless ever since Uber came along, and nobody's suggesting that, you know, the industry didn't need a shake up. Of course it did. But, uh, I mean you can't, if people have had taxi licences and relied on them to pass down to family members and all the rest of it in order to secure their financial futures, you can't just leave them hanging. And that's effectively what I think the state government in New South Wales has done. The taxi industry also believes that and they're after more compensation. We're already paying a dollar if you like uh, in a levy every time you hop in an Uber or a, a taxi to try and compensate the taxi industry. But apparently a number of, of senior Liberal MPs or Coalition MPs in New South Wales have agreed not to continue this levy, which means the taxi industry basically can't be compensated. The Minister, David Elliott, and the previous Transport Minister, they've all called for greater compensation, but there was nothing in McKean's budget earlier this week. And, you know, I think it's only fair that the government pay up considering they allowed the, <laughs> the whole industry to blow itself up. The rideshare industry, that is. OK, so we'll talk about those issues and a, a stack more other. Uh, we'll update you on the half hour, of course, with the latest news, courtesy of Air News. And we'll play some bangers for you as well, some great music to get you in the mood on this Thursday morning. It is the 23rd day of June. It's my son's birthday. Happy birthday, Bailey. <coughs> Okay, let's get into it, Marcus Paul, in the morning. Down by, I'll be right here at the side gate just to say hi. You say you've seen Avi. He's about ten inches tall, and he's paying the price for what he did. Trust me, he's telling. Okay, Thursday morning. Let's get amongst some of the big stories, Marcus Paul, in the morning around Australia. Well, the Prime Minister Anthony Albanese blasted Adam Bance, the Greens leader, yesterday over his refusal to appear alongside the Australian flag because, in Mr Bance's opinion, it offends some Aboriginal Australians. Now, the PM said he was proud of the flag and accused the Greens leader of looking for division. Now, we know Mr Bance's staff removed the flag from behind their leader before a press conference in Sydney on Monday. And yesterday, while he was speaking in Hobart, Albo said, I'm always very proud to stand in front of the Australian flag, and I think everyone who is a member of the Australian Parliament should do so as well. He went on to say, Reconciliation is about bringing people together on the journey that we need to undertake. It is undermined if people look for division rather than look for unity. A range of people I respect have made strong comments. I respect them. And I just say to Mr. Bant that he needs to think about the responses that have been made and reconsider his position and work to promote unity and work to promote reconciliation. That's what the Prime Minister had to say yesterday. Now, early up in the day, Liberal MP Phil Thompson, uh, he's the fellow who survived a bomb exploding a a metre or so in front of him in Afghanistan when he served his country. He described the Greens lead up as a, quote, national disgrace. He said his wife, Jenna, who is Aboriginal, was, quote, disgusted by the stunts. I'm sure she was. Now, Mr Thompson is the Shadow Assistant Defence Minister and MP for Herbert up there in Townsville, North Queensland. He wrote on Twitter, My wife is a proud Aboriginal woman and disgusted by the Leader of the Greens media stunt and his rhetoric of division. He says, I take the importance of the Australian national flag very seriously. I fought underneath it. My brothers who were killed in action have had our flag draped over their coffins. Now, speaking later in the day, he accused Mr Bat of trying to divide the nation. We must always recognise and acknowledge the past, but the way we move forward, said Mr Thompson, as a nation is to walk together. Of course, we know what happened here. A member of Adam Bant's staff was seen removing the flag from behind the podium before the presser at the Commonwealth Parliamentary offices in Sydney. This happened on Monday. Now, the move meant that only the Aboriginal flag and the Torres Strait Islander flag could be seen behind him as he spoke to the cameras. Now, I have no problem with the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander flags being behind anybody politician or anyone who wants to speak publicly. That's fine, but in my opinion, to serve as a unifying type of scenario, we need to also include the Australian flag. Now, Mr. Bant told Daily Mail Australia the nation's flag reminds some people of Australia's colonial past. Well, it may well do. The flag, of course, first flown after Federation in 1901, has the Union Jack in the upper left corner to acknowledge the history of British settlement. Now, Mr Bant said, for many Australians, this flag represents dispossession and the lingering pains of colonisation. Through treaty with First Nations peoples and by moving to a republic, we can have a flag that represents all of us. Obviously, Adam Bant is in favour of a republic. A review of Mr Bant's previous television interview shows he always has the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander flags in the background, but never the nation's flag. Now, Mr Bant added later that the Union Jack symbol is hurtful to Indigenous Australians. Well, we're going to post up on our Facebook page, What Do You Believe? Marcus Paul in the morning. Oh, my God. Yeah, nice to have your company wherever you're listening to us around Australia. Here on starterfm.com.au, the iHeartRadio platform. Tune in or maybe on the PrawnCast, the podcast. Thank you for being there. Look, as 85,000 New South Wales school teachers prepare to go on strike next week, the New South Wales Premier says they are getting one of the most generous wage hikes in the country. The 24-hour strike by public and Catholic school teachers on June 30th, just a day before school holidays start, will be the third strike in six months, and is expected to affect about a million families just a day before two weeks of holidays. Premier Dominic Perrottet accused union bosses of "quote playing politics with the people of New South Wales," saying it's completely unacceptable and it's wrong, considering teachers will get a 3% wage hike with the potential of 3.5% the following year. Now, Mr Perrottet told reporters yesterday in Sydney, we have the highest wage increases of any state in the country. I think where we've landed is fair and reasonable. It's nation building. Teachers in Victoria had been given a 1.5% increase, but were not taking industrial action against the Labor government there. What I don't see around the country are protests and inconveniencing parents and school children, and I think that's incredibly disappointing, Mr Perrottet said. He went on to say it's been a tough few years but need to ensure that what we do is fair and reasonable. Now, of course, he's accused the unions of going out of their way to cause massive inconvenience to parents by striking on the last day of the financial year when people who ran small businesses were pretty busy. New South Wales Teachers Federation and the Independent Education Union called the joint strike after Tuesday's budget papers revealed no further offer was on the table. They argue the deal translates to a real wage cut, probably does. That's of course with inflation running at 5.2% and forecast to tip over 7% as schools deal with a teacher shortage that threatens to escalate. Angelo Gavrilatos, who's, of course, the New South Wales Teachers Federation president, he said the government has failed students and continues to fail students and the teaching profession. Again, what are your thoughts on that? Let me know. Marcus Paul in the morning. Okay, welcome back. Now, as I said yesterday, uh, when talking about this story, uh, one needs to be a little careful. As even though the court case has been deferred for now, it is still effectively before the courts. And I'm talking about the alleged rape of Brittany Higgins in Canberra in Parliament House. And of course, what happened uh, late last week. and early this week after Lisa Wilkinson decided again to throw a bit of publicity Brittany Higgins way. Uh, That's after she accepted a a Logies win. Anyway, but uh, unbelievably the Logies acceptance speech and resulting media commentary delayed the trial of the man accused of raping Brittany Higgins but Lisa Wilkinson apparently felt differently on speaking about alleged sexual assault just a year or so ago. There are tweets, in fact one in particular, that shows the television presenter new contempt law dangers long before she decided to make it all about her at the Logies. So a resurfaced tweet from Lisa Wilkinson's Twitter account seemingly shows that the television presenter was well aware of the dangers of speaking about the case. Of course she would be. She's an extremely high-paid journalist. Wilkinson's tweet from August last year, warned users against passing judgment, quote-unquote, about a man accused of alleged sexual assault of a woman in Parliament as this could have, quote, dire consequences for judicial fairness. And she was right back then in that tweet. And I've always said it. That's why I've been very careful in all of my commentary on this whole alleged affair. You know, with respect to Brittany Higgins... Uh, I don't mean any ill judgment on her, um, but we need to let natural justice take its course here in Australia. That's the way we operate. And, you know, unless you're otherwise proven, you are innocent. Anyway, the old tweet comes after the veteran journalist Logie's speech and resulting media commentary caused a delay in the criminal trial of former parliamentary staffer Brittany Higgins. Can I implore everyone to respect what's at play here? The tweets from August the 6th last year read, naming the man on social media and passing judgement could have dire consequences for the outcome of any trial. It comes as with gritted teeth, a judge has delayed the trial for the man accused of raping Brittany Higgins after television presenter Lisa Wilkinson completely obliterated the line between allegation and guilt in her Logu's acceptance speech. Yep, that's what the, (laughs) the justice said in the ACT court earlier this week. Now, Bruce Lerman has pleaded not guilty to sexually assaulting Ms Higgins inside Parliament House back in 2019. He was due to stand trial in the ACT Supreme Court starting next Monday, June 27. But as I said, ACT Chief Justice Lucy McCallum on Tuesday of this week vacated the trial dates after Lerman's defence team requested a temporary stay in response to Wilkinson's speech on Sunday. Now, Justice McCallum said she agreed to the delay, regrettably, and with gritted teeth. She went on to say, "'Unfortunately, the recent publicity does, in my view, change the landscape.'" Justice McCallum said the comments Wilkinson made when accepting the Logie for her work on Miss Higgins' story and a subsequent radio interview with Jonesy and Amanda on Monday morning on Sydney's WSFM, completely obliterated the line between an allegation and the finding of guilt. Justice McCallum said, and I quote, The implicit premise of the speech was to celebrate the truthfulness of the story she exposed. Like I said earlier this week, Lisa making it all about her. Now, I don't doubt it was, you know, it wasn't good journalism. However, again, because of the serious nature of the allegations, where it occurred and all the rest of it, you know, <laughs> journalists need to be very careful what they say publicly about it. Lerman's lawyer, Steve Wybrow, told the court the publicity following Wilkinson's speech posed a real threat to the trial process. It's untenable, he said, for a trial to be held in the case at this time. It was also revealed Wilkinson had been warned by the ACT's Director of Public Prosecutions, Shane Drumgold, about the risk of speaking publicly prior to her Logies win. On June 15, Wilkinson advised Mr Drumgold of her nomination and attempted to read her planned speech according to a note provided to the court. Now, Mr. Drumgold stopped her and said he was not a speech editor, but advised Wilkinson the defence could attempt to delay the trial in the event of the publicity. Now, Justice McCallum noted in previous hearings she had issued, quote, stern warnings to the media about its reporting, but her trust had been misplaced. Since uh, she had, sorry, she then asked Mr. Drumgold. If he wished to seek injunctions to prevent further commentary on the case, suggesting these could be directed at Wilkinson, Miss Higgins, The Project and radio hosts Brendan Jones and Amanda Keller, Justice McCallum did not set a new trial date but said October would perhaps be an appropriate time for a dissipation of prejudice. Now, a Network 10 spokesman acknowledged the court ruling and said the network fully supports Wilkinson. The network fully supports Wilkinson. Be nice to have that support from your employers, eh? Oh, yeah! Marcus Paul in the morning. Yeah, an update now on the John Barillaro plum gig to the United States scenario. Well, yesterday we heard the Premier, Dominic Perrottet, still backs John Barillaro for the plum New York job. Well, he would. (laughs) Of course he would. Dom Perrottet signed off on the bloody thing. Anyway, MPs voted to suspend the appointment, though. The offer for a public transport servant to take over as trade commissioner was terminated, we heard, before John Barillaro was hired for the role. Those are the startling revelations from yesterday. Yeah, Yeah, look, it is... Starting to sound more and more like a job for the boys, in my opinion. Premier Dominic Perrottet has backed the controversial selection of John Barillaro for a taxpayer-funded half-a-million-dollar New York trade post. As politicians voted in favour of suspending the appointment. The New South Wales Upper House yesterday passed a motion calling to halt the appointment of the former Deputy Premier as the Senior Trade and Investment Commissioner to the Americas, a role that he signed off on creating when he was still in Parliament. The motion passed 20-18 to and called for his appointment to be suspended until the Public Accountability Committee holds an inquiry and reports to Parliament. It came amid media reports of former senior public servant Jenny West had already been offered the job, only for it to be rescinded and then offered to John Barillaro instead. However, the Premier yesterday said he had received advice she was not offered the job. Well, uh, who knows? The Chief Executive of Investment New South Wales terminated the offer for the public transport servant to take over as Trade Commissioner before hiring John Barillaro for the role. Mr Perite revealed that the agency's Chief Executive Amy Brown terminated Jenny West's contract after she was offered the job of being a Trade Commissioner. Ms Brown previously reported to Mr Barrellaro in his former government role and was on the panel when he was interviewed for the trade role. Now, Mr Perrote said that under the Act governing the appointment, he could not legally intervene in the hiring process. He said yesterday most of them, the applicants, aren't suitable candidates. As such, a separate recruitment process was undertaken. That process was independent and led by a third-party recruiter. It would not be lawful for me as Premier to intervene in any step of the process. Now, Trade Minister Stuart Ayres said he did not solicit Mr Barillaro's application to get him the job. He said... I or any other minister did not intervene to prevent the appointment of Mr Barilaro following an independent merit-based recruitment process. Now, Mr Reyes denied that Mr Barilaro was his quote, captain's pick for the role. Mr Perrottet also backed the appointment of the former nationals leader to the job, saying former politicians being appointed to high level trade roles wasn't quote uncommon. I don't believe it's uncommon for ambassador roles and trade commissioner roles to be filled by previous politicians and particularly ones who have served with distinction in senior roles. That's something that's happened throughout the history of time. That was the Premier. A spokesman for Investment New South Wales, which the role falls under told the Daily Telegraph on Monday Mr Barilaro's appointment a lengthy and competitive global search process managed by NGS Global a specialist in external recruitment talent firm. That's who apparently undertook it. Candidates were shortlisted and assessed on a range of measures including suitability for the role, qualification, skills and experience. Alright, well, watch this space. At this stage, the appointment is not going ahead. (laughs) Thursday morning, great to have you company. Marcus Paul in the morning, right around Australia on Starter FM, iHeart Radio, TuneIn and of course on the podcast, the Prawncast, uh, where you get your uh favourite podcasts from whatever platform. Doesn't matter, there we are. <laughs> oh, by the way, there is a, a new option on our Facebook page, Marcus Paul in the Morning, if you wouldn't mind. Uh, you can subscribe. A little extra content, but it helps us keep the lights on here. I think it's $4 something a month. Pretty cheap, eh? Okay, a couple of other stories kicking around. A woman is told of the moment she saw her co-worker catch on fire while cleaning the floor in a restaurant in Parramatta, Safe Work New South Wales are investigating this nasty incident. It happened on Tuesday night just before 10 pm. Emergency services rushed to an explosion at a Lebanese restaurant on River Road West. It's just right near Parramatta River there. A 24 year old man sustained significant burns to around 30% of his body. Poor bloke. He caught a light while working on a sunset restaurant Uh, the hospitality employee was cleaning the floor we're told behind the bar when it's believed that the cleaning product which contained a flammable vapor caught fire from an electrical issue with the dishwasher boy oh boy how unlucky he was treated by ambos Including a critical care doctor and a critical care paramedic from three road crews on scene before being placed into an induced coma, dear oh dear, and then rushed to Concord Hospital. Now, a co worker who witnessed the incident was in an emotional state yesterday morning and told reporters she saw her colleague take a cocktail order before the fire started. I just want him to get better, she said. Around 150 residents living in apartments above the restaurant were required to evacuate, along with 15 to 20 occupants at the venue as well. Fire and Rescue New South Wales Superintendent Adam Dewberry said the fire triggered the building's automatic sprinkler system, which managed to put out the flames and caused the alarm to go off. Uh, anyone with an electric switch can ignite a vapour. I think that's the takeout from all of this. Anything rather with an electric switch can ignite a vapour. It's unlucky, but it's not uncommon, we're told. So make sure you're using a cleaning product within its manufacturing specifications. A Fire New South Wales spokesman from Parramatta Fire Brigade clarified yesterday morning that the man was burnt by flames from the explosion and then cooled off by the sprinklers before being put into a coma. Uh, he said it appears that inflammable liquid used to clean a floor, which is not a standard practice, will form part of their investigation. A crime scene, by the way, was set up on Tuesday night due to the severity of the incident. Safe Work New South Wales were notified they will conduct their own investigations in workplace safety. Meanwhile, the man remains in hospital in obviously quite a serious condition, uh, and we're hoping that he recovers well. All right, well, what about this other incident? Uh, This awful, awful story of the woman who died after having that golf buggy overturned on Hamilton Island. We told you about that yesterday. Well, she's been identified. She was on a honeymoon with her husband. Sydney woman Marina Morgan was killed on Hamilton Island just days after tying the knot when a buggy driven by her new husband overturned a newlywed bride. She was only 29 from the inner west of Sydney. She was enjoying her honeymoon with her husband, Robbie, just days after they tied the knot when the tragedy struck on Monday afternoon. Now, Miss Morgan had married her long-term partner the previous week at a lavish celebration at Daltone House, that's just down by the water at Piemont, before heading to Hamilton Island for a dream getaway. As we know, I told you yesterday, an off-duty fiery and a dentist fought frantically to save her after the buggy driven by her hubby overturned on Whitsunday Boulevard, which is on the northern end of the island. The fiery and dentist were among the first on the scene. They immediately started giving first aid, but unfortunately, Ms Morgan had gone into cardiac arrest. I'm looking at some photographs here of Marina Morgan and her husband. Looking very, very happy, and it's just such a tragic waste, it really is. Marcus Paul in the morning. Okay, uh, now one of the losers out of this week's New South Wales state budget was taxi owners. Transport Minister David Elliott put forward a proposal to increase taxi compensation by extending a $1 government charge on point-to-point rides, but it was knocked back by Cabinet, we're told, and the New South Wales Taxi Council's bid for higher compensation for licence holders, of course, was missing in the state budget. But the Premier... Dominic Perrottet says he is, quote, more than happy to meet with the taxi lobby over their calls for more compo for taxi licence holders after the group expressed their anger at being left out of the state budget. We know the New South Wales Taxi Council have been asking for compo, particularly um, since Uber came on board many years ago, rendering most taxi licences, let's be honest, pretty useless. They used to be worth a fortune, These days, you'd be lucky to get a couple of grand for them. The New South Wales Taxi Council lashed out at Treasurer McKean and senior ministers for not agreeing to a proposal to increase compensation payments for licence holders by extending a $1 levy on all rideshare and taxi rides. CEO Martin Rogers called for an urgent meeting with the Premier and Mr Keene this week to air their concerns. Now, yesterday, Dominic Perrottet said he was more than happy to meet with them. The Premier said that licence holders had already been paid some compensation for their licences and conversions... Uh, oh, sorry, and conversations about increasing those payments are ongoing, says the Premier. I know that they've asked for further support, and we're working through that with the Transport Minister, is what he said. David Elliott, who is the Transport Minister, submitted a proposal to Cabinet's Expenditure Review Committee, which would have con- compensated taxi licence holders impacted by rideshare companies like, by, like Uber, of course, by as much as $250,000. But the money was knocked back by many Liberal MPs. The money would have been raised by keeping in place a passenger service levy on taxi and ride share of trips worth about $1 a ride. The proposal would have kept the levy, which currently applies to all taxi and ride share trips in place until it raised the money that was required. Now. New South Wales Taxi Council boss Martin Rogers said that the industry has copped more than a $1.5 billion hit since Uber was legalised. The passenger service levy has raised almost $250 million in revenue so far, but it's not enough. Mr Rogers said the levy has over-collected about $100 million. There's no actual plan in place at the moment to distribute that money. So $100 million is sitting in an account somewhere. Now, reporters have been told the money can't be distributed to taxi licence holders without new legislation. So Mr Rogers said he was extremely disappointed that Mr Keane did not increase compensation to taxi licence holders in Tuesday's budget this week. He said taxi licence holders had been decimated by the arrival of Uber. Six years ago, $1.6 billion was ripped out of the assets of 5,000 families across New South Wales. And he's right, because many families relied on these taxi licences as, you know, their, their, their future. They were worth a fortune. Mr Rogers said Mr Elliott and Regional Transport Minister Sam Farraway developed a proposal which they were taking to the Treasurer on our behalf. He went on to say, There are many members of Parliament who want fair and proper compensation. There are two Transport Ministers that want this to be dealt with, but for some reason the proposal hasn't been considered by the Treasurer in this year's budget. We actually need to have an urgent meeting with the Premier and the Treasurer this week to resolve it all. Now, Government Ministers declined to comment yesterday on why the proposal did not make it through the expenditure review committee process and into the budget, citing Cabinet confidentiality. That's <laughs> what they always do, don't they? But. David Elliott has previously told the industry he did not believe initial compensation payments of $20,000 for licence holders went far enough. Well, he's absolutely right. Earlier this year, David Elliott assured taxi drivers, through a budget estimates hearing, that the government, quote, has got their back. Well, it would appear they do not. Marcus Paul in the morning. Hey welcome back Thursday morning, Marcus Paul in the morning. Now, those of you who are like me old enough to remember shows like The Cosby Show and Hey Dad, probably feel a little bit of guilt of having laughed along. Not only with Bill Cosby, but that thing that's, I think, about to be sent or has been sent back to the United Kingdom, Robert Hughes. Uh, Both stars of comedy shows that were extremely popular in the 1980s and into the 1990s. But both men, of course, uh, well, they have faced serious allegations and been found guilty of serious offences regarding uh, rape and sexual assaults awful stuff. The latest, of course, is Bill Cosby with the jury finding the comedian sexually assaulted a woman at the Playboy Mansion all the way back in 1975. A jury has handed down its verdict in a civil trial against actor Bill Cosby filed by a woman who claims he molested her as a teenager. The jury has found that the entertainer, assaulted the teen at the Playboy Mansion almost five decades ago. Her name is Judy Huth. She's now aged 64, and she's been awarded a half a million dollars in damages after the jury in Santa Monica determined that Cosby had molested her in 1975, when she was all but 16 years of age. The case is one of the few remaining legal actions against Cosby, and he's had many. He's 84. He's been accused of assault by dozens of women, as we know. He was jailed in Pennsylvania in a separate criminal case back in 2018, but was freed last year when his conviction was overturned on a technicality. Well, perhaps the rooster's coming home to roost, I don't know. Over a two-week trial, this is the civil hearing which Cosby did not attend, lawyers said the man once known as America's dad escorted Hooth and her then 17-year-old friend, by the name of Donna, to the mansion after meeting them on a movie set in a park near their homes where he was making a film called, quote, Let's Do It Again. <laughs> yeah. According to them, he invited them to his tennis club days later and then took them to a house where he was staying where they played a game in which they had to drink beer every time they lost at Billions. He then asked them to follow him in their car to the Playboy Mansion. All this reported in the New York Times. Are you girls ready for your surprise, he said. According to Miss Hooth, who had no clue what it would be. She testified this in court. During the trial, her lawyers showed the jury a photograph of Miss Hooth standing with Mr Cosby in the game room at the Playboy Mansion, which she claimed was taken only 15 minutes before he allegedly sexually assaulted her and forced her to perform a sex act on him. Cosby denied, of course, any wrongdoing, and his lawyers made much of the apparent discrepancies in Miss Huth's story, including that both teens spent up to 12 hours at the mansion after the alleged assault. They also argued that Miss Huth originally claimed the attack happened in 1974 when she was 15, but later said it happened the following year. The case was never prosecuted criminally as the statute of limitations had passed by the time Hooth spoke to police. Now, Ms. Hooth was able to bring the civil suit under a California law allowing adults who say they were victims of sexual abuse as minors, but repressed what happened to them for years to pursue such cases. There we go. So, Mr Cosby, uh, not a criminal matter this time. He'll avoid jail, but a half a million dollars will be awarded to his alleged victim. Marcus Paul in the morning. All right, welcome back. Marcus Paul in the morning. Well, a far-right commentator... Is trying to identify a pseudonym on social media by the name of PR Guy. Now, if you're a, <laughs> a follower of mine, and friendly Geordies, and uh, I guess if you're a little into your politics, you'll you'll know what this is all about. The right winger, uh, Holymast Avi Yemani or Yemeni, Alimini. has vowed to return to court this time seeking information from Telstra in his quest to unveil the identity of a high-profile Twitter user that goes by the handle of at PRguy17. Yemeni obtained a federal court order last week directing Twitter to hand over the account details of the left-wing commentator, who Yemeni is intending to sue over social media posts he says defamed him. Twitter complied with that order. They supplied Yemeni with several IP addresses, unique numbers that identify a device on the internet, but he now needs Telstra to identify the holder of the addresses. The name and the email provided by Twitter did not offer enough information to identify the owner of the account. <laughs> Anyway, Telstra said that due to privacy reasons, it only discloses the holder of an IP address when compelled to by a court order. It said it had not yet received a request from Yemeni. Customers can access their personal phone records and metadata via an online form, but only the account holder can request this information. Any other requests... Need to be made via a lawful request from the appropriate authorities, a spokesman from Telstra has said. PR Guy became a lightning rod for political controversy during the pandemic, posting a steady stream of comments supporting the Andrews Victorian government and gaining around 90,000 followers. So, PR Guy has a hell of a lot of support. Created in March 2020, using the Simpsons Simpsons character Troy McClure as its avatar, the account quickly became one of the most vociferous cheerleaders of the Victorian government's pandemic response. Which there's nothing wrong with. Anyway, as the account's following grew, PR guy and their followers repeatedly clashed with politicians, journalists and other commentators who were critical of Premier Dan Andrews and other Labor figures. Uh, Well, you know, it's all part of the culture wars and we know how political the pandemic and the response from various governments became. Now, Yemeni, who's a correspondent for Canadian alternative right website Rebel News, which was connected to the anti-lockdown movement, said the account owner has used a virtual private network or a VPN to mask their IP address since it was created, but had occasionally logged in without activating the shield. He said we 100% will unmask the account as we now have five separate unprotected IP addresses where the account holder failed to activate the VPN before logging in. We have several direct hits using the same IP addresses at different times, meaning that we think Telstra can tell us who he is, or it is, he or she is, or they are. (laughs) Web security consultant Troy Hunt said Telstra can link an IP address to an individual through their account and payment system, and that telecommunication providers often had to hand over information about account holders in criminal justice contexts. When you authenticate to an internet service provider and give payment information, they, that's the provider, will assign an IP address to you. The purpose of a VPN is protect an IP address. Once there's a court order, local providers have to comply. Now, back in 2020, Optus was ordered to disclose the details of a customer accused of defaming a Melbourne dentist through a Google review. Optus was served with a subpoena to produce documents that would unmask the writer of the negative review. The specifics of the defamation claim being pursued by Yemani have not yet been lodged in court because the defendant has yet to be identified. Anyway, in a statement sent to The Age via Twitter, PR Guy did not respond to specific questions saying only, I categorically uh, reject, in the strongest of terms, all and any of the totally baseless allegations that I am either Hillary Clinton or a politician's cat. <laughs> oh, it's such fun, isn't it? It really is. All right, Arby, all the best. Good luck with your search. Go and get that court order. Uh, it's the only chance you've got uh, of getting any information out of Telstra. Marcus Paul in the morning. <coughs> Well, former Australian of the Year Grace Tame has made news again. This time, she's calling on the Albanese government to close a legal loophole that I didn't even know existed. It's one that allows pedophiles to quarantine their superannuation from sexual abuse survivors. Under the current rules, victims of crime who launch civil action for Compo against their perpetrators can't access any funds held in the offenders' superannuation accounts. What it means, effectively, is that pedophiles are able to hide their assets in their super, which should be available to compensate the survivors of their abuse. What it means is that the liability then is on the taxpayer to fund the compensation of survivors. And according to Grace Tame, what needs to change is that pedophiles should be responsible for compensating their victims. Now, victims advocate Howard Brown said the issue came to light back in 2017 when the victims of a convicted Bega Valley pedophile Maurice Van Ryn discovered they would be unable to access hundreds of thousands of dollars he had in superannuation through a civil compensation claim. We found that Van Ryn was virtually penniless as he'd placed all of his funds into his superannuation account, Mr Brown said. And he basically said to us everything I have is in my super and you can't touch that. And of course he was correct. We couldn't. In 2018, then-Financial Services Minister Kelly O'Dwyer promised a legislative change to give victims access to their perpetrator superannuation for compensation, but that plan stalled. Adelaide-based lawyer Andrew Carpenter has been pushing for the reform to be introduced since 2020. It's going to save the taxpayer, it's going to punish offenders and it's going to finally be something that compensates survivors, according to Mr Carpenter. He is joined with Grace Tame and her foundation, the Grace Tame Foundation, uh, that was established back in 2021, uh, as well as Fighters Against Child Abuse Australia and the Carly Ryan Foundation. They've all joined forces to lobby the new Labor government to introduce superannuation reform. Now, Labor was asked for comment on this reform while in opposition, but has not made any commitments. Assistant Treasurer Stephen Jones said in a statement, I have not yet had the opportunity to discuss Ms Tain's proposal with her. The government would welcome a discussion on how we can support survivors and that role that each level of government should have. The Grace Tame Foundation, Fighters Against Childhood Abuse Australia and the Carly Ryan Foundation have written to the Assistant Treasurer to request a meeting. Now Ms Tame said the legal loophole was another example of a system stacked against victim survivors of sexual abuse. She said it's really important for people to understand the fundamental power imbalance between survivors and pedophiles. Where we seem to keep going wrong, according to Grace Tame, is in simplifying it to one between individuals. It isn't. And it's a classic example of systems abuse that remains unchanged. Instead of thinking of it in terms of individual perpetrators and individual victims, it is actually individual victims versus the entire machine. Now, Mr Carpenter said it was not uncommon for convicted perpetrators to dispose of their assets before going to prison. He said this happened in the case of Adelaide woman Melissa Snelling, whose adoptive father Robert Snelling was jailed in 2019 for sexually abusing her as a child. Out of 10 years of doing survivor victim claims, the case of Melissa Snelling was probably the hardest one i had been involved in, he said. That was the most heinous and abhorrent cases of child exploitation that I've ever seen. Now, Mr. Carpenter said before Snelling was jailed, he attempted to sell his house to his son for 22 grand, but was ordered to transfer the house to Melissa as part of the court ruling. So the house was easy to claw back, but when people have superannuation, that's something that's almost impossible to claw back. And that's something that this change will effectively do. Now, Miss Snelling said the persistent sexual abuse she suffered as a child had left her with ongoing mental and physical pain, and that no amount of financial, compensa- and that no amount of financial compensation would fix. Anyway, I won't go through her awful story, but effectively, she ended up in a—you know—even uh, though she won and this bloke was jailed, her father, she ended up, you know, with a hundred odd thousand dollars in legal fees. Anyway, the current system is unfair, it's wrong, and, of course, what it does mean is, you know, if perpetrators and those convicted of child sexual abuses can effectively tie up their money in their superannuation accounts, it means basically they can get out of jail and set themselves back up again. Uh, You know, it's right to ask, why did they deserve the right to be set back up again when they've given someone a sentence for life? Anyway, all the advocates say they hoped Anthony Albanese's federal government would consider the reform, as I think we all do. Marcus Paul in the morning. Okay, well, that wraps up our Thursday. Thank you for joining us here on Marcus Paul in the Morning, live on starterfm.com.au. The iHeartRadio platform, if you haven't already downloaded the app, please do so. And you can listen to us via TuneIn as well. Um, The podcast, Prawncast, that'll be up a little later this afternoon. If you've missed any of this week's programs, of course, you can always go to your favourite podcasting platform and download them there. If you follow us on social media, there'll be more content up on the Facebook page, of course. If you wouldn't mind, uh, subscribe. Uh, for a little extra content, which we'll start providing on the Facebook page. Helps keep the lights on around here. It's only, uh, I think, $4.95 or something a month. We'd appreciate you doing that. If you can. If you can't, then it's all good, we understand. (laughs) Okay, enjoy the rest of the, uh, the day. We'll be back tomorrow for the final Marcus Paul in the Morning for this week. It's been great having your company. Look after each other. Catch you tomorrow. Bye for now. This will get you the goodies.